Well, we'll come to the time in our service now where we will look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters. We're continuing through this series in the book of Acts, Pioneer Church. And so today we're going to be coming out of Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8. If you've got a brown pew Bible, you'll see on page 775, that's where the passage begins. When you found that... Would you stand together with me and we'll read our passage together. just want to put your minds at ease. We're not going to read all of this. This is a very long passage, but we'll jump through parts of it here this morning. This is honestly one of my least favorite sermons I've written, not because of the content, but because I don't like this passage. It's, it's hard to read, and yet it gives us some amazing truths as well. So I pray that we'll be blessed this morning as we go through this. So Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. Now, just catching you up here, we're continuing in the life of this pioneer church, and what we're seeing here now is the, this, the ministries of the church have become too much. The church is growing so big, the apostles are like, man, we can't, we can't serve everybody. We can't do all the things we need to do to run this thing. And so here we have the first deacons are ever created. We got seven guys, verse 3 of chapter 6 says, guys who are full of the spirit and wisdom, who take on some of the ministries of the church so that the apostles can continue to give themselves to prayer and to the Word. And one of those guys is a guy named Stephen, which we'll look at this morning. So verse 8, let me read together with you. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. That means two things. We've got Greek Jews here who are part of this synagogue of the freedmen. And the mention of Cilicia particularly tells us that it's very likely that Saul, later the Apostle Paul, is a part of this group here now. These men began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then... They secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin. Here we go again. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? And to this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Now what Stephen does here is he gives this huge speech. It's the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts, actually, where basically he's taken them from Abraham all the way through to Moses, to David, answering those two charges they brought against him. Are you speaking against the temple? And are you speaking against the law? Both of which, to which Stephen says, no, what I'm actually teaching is that Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. The temple is no longer a place where we go. Jesus is the temple. He is the meeting place between God and men. And the law is not, is not done away with, but it's fulfilled in Jesus. But he closes his speech in a way that we might not expect. So if you flip over the page to verse 51 now, on page 776, verse 51... He finishes off by leaving the history lesson and now addressing these leaders. And he says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just 
like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it, and when they heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. It's God's word. You may be seated. May pray for us once more and just commit this time and our service to Him as well. Living God, we come now to Your Word. A difficult, hard passage today to listen to. It breaks our hearts. Our Father, we trust that every word of Your Scripture is inspired, is, is given to us for a reason, and we believe that You have brought us here to this passage today for a specific reason. You want to reveal something to all of us, just as you have revealed something to me this week through it, and I pray that you'd give us open hearts and ears to receive it, that you would accomplish the work in us that you have sent out this word to accomplish. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, if you uh, grew up in church at all, or you're just familiar with classic biblical narratives, you're probably familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Do you know this story? You probably saw it on a flannel graph if you grew up going to church. Uh, a story of Daniel. He's one of the uh, Hebrew exiles living in Babylon, rises to prominence in the kingdom as God blesses him. But, but as God does that, it, it evokes jealousy among the nationals who kind of feel maybe they've been passed over by this Hebrew slave. And seeing that they can't find any legitimate means to get rid of him, they organize this dishonest trial, this dishonest means to, to bring Daniel to trial, and after which he's essentially, he's martyred. He's thrown to the lions for his faith in God. But, if you know the story, of course, uh, Daniel, although he is thrown into this den of lions, miraculously God sends an angel, closes the mouth of the lions. He's not harmed in any way. It's an amazing story of God's faithfulness as well as a demonstration of God's power to deliver people as they faithfully bear witness to him. And yet what we see in our passage this morning as we look at the life of a man named Stephen, although it's almost identical to what we read in the life of Daniel in every way, is that in this story now, well, no angel is sent. And rather than being delivered from the lions that surround him, Stephen is devoured by them. 
don't know about you, but I have a number of areas in my life that I find really almost impossible to categorize, to put. I don't know where to put them. On a much lower, simpler level, things like bacon, uh, foods I don't like, foods I do like, but bacon isn't a food I just like. It's a whole different category. The Disney character Goofy. What is he? Is he a dog? Is he a cow? We don't, we don't know where to put it. On a more serious level, uh, the love that I have for my children. We, we kind of get romantic relationships, why I would love someone. There's kind of a mutuality to it. But when you have a child, you pour energy and time into that child, and they give you almost, actually, they give you nothing back. And yet, you have this amazing love for them. You'd do anything for them. We don't know what, what kind of love is that. Which category does that go in? And for here this morning in our passage, on a much deeper and more serious level, this story in the book of Acts is something we, we don't know where to put it. We don't know what category to put it in because this is just so foreign. It's so foreign to both our, our cultural experience as well as our, our fragile North American sensibilities. We just we don't know where to put this. And our first inclination for most of us is to want to try to distance ourselves from it. Uh, historically, first of all, we want to say, hey, well, you know, we, we look at this stuff that's happening, we say, oh, look at how barbaric they used to be in these ancient times. I'm so glad that we're more civilized now in this day and age. And yet you only need to look at the news. You only need to open your social media feed to see that this is very much still happening today. A clear example of this would be what we see in the life of the, the Coptic church in Egypt. Okay, so accepting that, then we might want to distance ourselves geographically. We might want to say, okay, we see this kind of horrific martyrdom and suffering for Jesus. We say, okay, well, that happens over there. Yes, it happens today, but it happens over there. But just, God, we give you thanks that we live in a country where these kind of things don't happen. And yet all the time in our minds, wondering, wonder would I, would I have the strength and the courage to stand for Jesus against the lions if my faith was tested like this? My encouragement to each one of you this morning is simply this. Don't try to do that. Don't, don't distance yourself from this and try to separate it as something over there. Try to find the courage this morning as we go through this passage to be open and enter into it. To let yourself be touched by it as a reality. And I say that for three reasons. First of all, because what we're seeing here in our passage is actually a pivotal moment in the whole life of the early church. It's why... Luke gives it so much airtime in the book of Acts. Secondly, if you were with us last week, the reality is what we see Stephen doing here is living out what we talked about, about walking the path of worthiness. He's showing us what it looks like here, following an example of his hero, Jesus, in remarkably similar ways. Finally, although it may not look the same way in any of our lives today... God's calling on Stephen to offer up his life as the cost of being a witness for Jesus is not some unique calling that God has put on Stephen alone. It's the calling that God has placed on all of us, you and I as well. It's the call he's placed on all of us in order to be his witnesses. Now you might hear that and you might think, shoot, <laughs> I knew I should have listened to that voice that told me to push snooze again this morning on the alarm. I promise you, I, I'm praying earnestly that this time together we spend today, it's not going to be a downer. It's not going to be, it's going to be really 
transformative, I hope. That we're going to see, I've asked God's Spirit to use this time together to transform our whole idea of what it means to be a witness for Jesus today. And if you know Jesus yourself, I'm praying this will also help you learn how to find the strength and boldness to face whatever cost may be involved as you seek to be His witnesses today. So if that sounds uh, interesting, uh, and maybe just intriguing enough to want to listen a little bit longer, would you turn back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8. Follow along with me. We're going to go through this passage this morning in looking at three things. I want to show you an answered prayer for boldness, dying a hero's death, and then finally, our call to witness today. An answered prayer for boldness, dying a hero's death, our call to witness today. So let's look first of all at an answered prayer for boldness. An answered prayer for boldness. Now, whether you've been with us throughout this entire series through Acts, you just forgot, or if this is your first Sunday, let me show you first of all why this really horrific scene in our passage is actually, it includes an answer to prayer. Actually, a number of them. If you flip back maybe one page, if you're using this pew Bible, from Acts 6 to Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, what we see there is Peter and John. They've just been released from their first arrest. They'd healed that man who'd been crippled all his life and they'd been brought to trial. And as they come out and they are reporting everything that they've seen and all that's happened, how they were empowered in their witness, we have recorded here a prayer that they all offered up together afterwards, expressing their trust and confidence in God now that uh, they see Him as uh, the creator of all things, as the sovereign ruler of all things. They say, okay, we know we can trust you, God. But look at how they close their prayer. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 29. They close out their prayer this way. They say, now, Lord, consider their threats, that's the religious leaders, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So when we went through this, we saw, we noted, hey, when what they prayed, when they came to God, they didn't say, God, hey, would you keep us from being persecuted anymore? Would you help us not to be oppressed in our witness anymore? No, they said, give us greater boldness in our witness. Give us the courage to do this. As well as, they said, continue to perform these miraculous signs by the power of Jesus through us that authenticates our witness. That's why it's so significant now when we come to to our passage here. Verse 3, talking about Stephen as one of those men who was full of the Spirit and wisdom. As well as uh, verse 55 of chapter 7. Flip over there. We see Stephen as he knows now he's, he's about to be killed for his witness for Jesus. It says very clearly, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. This is reminiscent of Peter as he was about to give his first sermon at Pentecost. All of this reveals to us that God has heard that prayer for boldness and witness, and He's absolutely granting that request. We see Stephen all through this ordeal, clearly empowered by God's Spirit, first of all, to retain his composure and his his calmness as he's giving this address. He's got total power and authority as he's doing this. It says, remember in 6.15, as he's about to answer the charges, his face is like the face of an angel. He's not stressed out. He's not... not screaming and yelling at people. He's, he's calm. His face is like the face of an angel. Also, he's enabled to give this epic history of Israel address to this council of religious leaders who I guarantee you is measuring his every word, just waiting for something to jump on. Wait, wait, what did you say? 
Okay, all right, continue. Incredibly stressful moment. Stephen is given a, a boldness, though, to give this witness here, though, although it enrages the religious leaders, they have no response to it. No response other than, than mob violence just to shut them up. They just, we don't want to hear any more of this. We don't know what to do with it, but we can't, we can't argue against it. And we know this is boldness as well because at the end of this whole speech that Luke records, again, we said it's the longest speech address recorded in the book of Acts, rather than just responding to those two charges, are you speaking against the temple and Moses, just responding to the charges, receiving his flogging and going home, Instead, Stephen takes this opportunity now as he's got an, an audience of all these religious leaders to now address them. Uh, as one commentator says it, the, the accused now becomes the accuser. And he says there in verse 51, you stiff-necked people. This is the exact words that God used to describe Israel in the book of Exodus and when they continue to test him and fight against him. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, those who, who cannot hear and receive God's words. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, you, you've killed every prophet that ever came. You killed the prophets that talked about Jesus coming, and now you yourselves have killed Jesus. It's an unbelievable strength and boldness that he's given. So, in the midst of this, we already see that. We say, okay, that's boldness. I, I don't know if I could do that. He's given incredible boldness to answer uh, these accusations against him. His witness is empowered. And yet, along with that answer for prayer here, there's actually one more answer to prayer that ironically comes as a result of Stephen's death. If you just look down a few verses to chapter 8. Verses 1 and 3, there, there we read that as a result of Stephen's death, it's like someone has chucked a bucket of chum into the shark tank, and now it seems like the ones who are being empowered is Saul and the religious leaders. They just go on a, a feeding frenzy on the church. They are just tearing it apart. Everyone's scattered. Everyone but the apostles leaves. They're, they're fleeing, getting out of there. But as the church is scattered, do you remember... Where, did you notice where it was they were fleeing to? Look at the second half of verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Aren't those the exact places that Jesus had told the disciples they were to be witnesses for them after they'd received the Holy Spirit? Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Okay, so, so they're getting the witnesses in Jerusalem part. They got that part down pat, but now months later, however long this is, everybody's still chilling in Jerusalem. They're still here. They haven't gone anywhere else. So what we see here is that it is a direct result of Stephen's death. It actually leads the church to finally be obedient to what Jesus had called them to from the first part. If you look at Acts uh, 8, verse 4 now, skip down there, we see that now the church begins to spread like wildfire as a, as a result of this. Because everywhere these people go, they're not just going to hide out for a while, they're going, and it says, preaching the word wherever they went. The Greek term is euangelizo. They are literally gospeling everywhere they went. 
two things I think we can see there from this part of the story as it relates to our own witness today. First of all, we see Jesus can absolutely be trusted to empower us in our witness. Even amidst the most violent, uh, uh, passionate opposition that we can imagine facing, He's faithful. He will empower our witness. The thing to remember is that what we're seeing here is the empowering grace, grace that the Spirit provides is at the moment it's needed and not before. Did you see that? So you might be looking at Stephen's witness here and you think, oh, I could never do that. I could never talk like that in front of people. First thing to say is, in your own strength, no, you're absolutely right, you couldn't. Secondly, you can see that the reason you can't imagine being able to face opposition like that is because you're not facing opposition like that. That's why you can't imagine it. I love what pastor and author Tim Keller said once. He said, God doesn't give us hypothetical grace for situations we may encounter. He gives us what we need for today. Second thing which I think stands out as it relates to our own witness, we see that God is faithful to empower us for the witness like He's promised when we need it, but He's also passionately committed to helping us be obedient to what He's called us to. He's not going to say, oh yeah, you, I've called you to do that, but you, you've taken a long time to do it. Well, don't worry about it. No, no, he's going to continue to press on us and lead us to what he's called us to do. Church of Jerusalem is doing awesome. It's blowing up. It's, it lights out here as the Spirit's empowering the church's witness. All thousands of people coming to faith. That's great. But remember, God, Jesus hadn't called them to, to build the kingdom of Jerusalem. He called them to build the kingdom of God which went well beyond Jerusalem and ethnic Israel to, to the ends of the earth and all peoples. It's just as I said last Sunday. It's no different for us here right now. We, we, we're seeing God do amazing things in our church. People coming to faith, people being baptized, and it's exciting and awesome, but we can never forget God hasn't called us to build the kingdom of Dunbar Heights Baptist Church. The kingdom of God, Period which means we always need to be looking to extend the gospel outside of these four walls, extend the reach of the gospel. It's not just for us, something we can keep for ourselves. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be spread. So that's an answered prayer for boldness. I hope you see it. that had both intended. It's probably some unintended results for the church as God answered their prayer. But next I want us to just look at Stephen's witness a little bit more closely for a minute. So let's look now at Dying a hero's death. Dying a hero's death. Now, all I want to do here is just describe the circumstances just as Luke lists them. And I want to ask you a simple question. Okay? You ready? Okay, Luke shows us here a man full of the spirit and wisdom, performing miraculous signs, and who also shuts down his detractors in every debate he has with them. Luke shows us a man who is falsely accused before a court of religious leaders and then is taken outside the city and killed. He shows us a man who, as he is dying, commits his spirit to the Lord and prays for the forgiveness of his murderers. And here's my question. Who are the circumstances Luke just gave us there describing? Who's he talking about? Okay, it's Stephen. Yeah, it's Stephen, but... Don't those details mirror the life of Jesus almost identically? It's spooky. Which is why I said as we started out, a part of what we're seeing in this very brief picture of the life of a man named Stephen is a man living out in real time 
what walking the path of worthiness looks like. Remember we saw last week as we talked about how in Greco-Roman culture of this time, they didn't teach uh, virtues and morals and self-esteem explicitly in classes. No, no, what they did is they created these mythical hero stories, these God stories of guys who had these qualities and virtues, and then they taught them the stories. Narcissus, Hercules, uh, Prometheus, they said, hey, look at, these, look at these guys who have these qualities and be like them, follow these heroes, or, or don't be like them. That's how they taught them these qualities in their own life, which is why it was so telling that as the apostles were giving their defense before the religious leaders, they called Jesus both the Savior as well as their hero, their archegos in the Greek. Or why the author of Hebrews would tell us in Hebrews 12, the way to endure suffering and our witness for Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus, the archegos, the hero and perfecter of our faith. Now, no, Stephen isn't, he's not pursuing this martyrdom at the hands of religious leaders in some kind of deranged pantomime of Jesus. But what we absolutely see is Stephen is responding to this unjust suffering with the same grace and steadfastness that his hero Jesus did. And as a result, two amazing things happen. First of all, Stephen now becomes a hero to somebody else who witnesses his death. And we'll look at that a bit more closely a few weeks from now when we look at Saul. But the other thing that happens is Stephen is now given a literal vision of the resurrected Jesus, which up until now has only been able to see with the eyes of his heart. And this is remarkable, actually, because in almost every other reference to the resurrected Jesus in the New Testament, every time they talk about him, almost always, he's sitting. He's, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which is the seat of power and, and, and authority and judgment. He's, he's seated, having completed the work that he was sent to do. And yet now, as Stephen knows he's about to face an unjust death, just as his hero did, heaven is open to him, and what does he see? Look at verse 55 of chapter 7. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, a few things people have said about this. Some say this is Jesus standing, rising from his seat of power in order to welcome his good and faithful servant into his rest. I think that, that could absolutely be true. I love what some other commentators have said as well that suggests what, what Stephen is seeing, actually, is Jesus' advocacy for his children. Jesus is standing and interceding for his servant in the throne room of heaven, just as it tells us in Hebrews 7.25. He always lives to intercede for us. So we see it this way because, remember, historically, in historical monarchies, the throne room was also the courtroom. So now Jesus is standing in the courtroom of heaven and as Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus pronouncing him innocent in the only courtroom that truly matters. He's able to endure being declared guilty in this much lower earthly court. And there's way too much I'd like to say about Stephen's witness here, the very first martyr of the pioneer church. But for our purposes here today, I just want to focus on one thing which is the means by which Stephen was empowered to be faithful to his witness for Jesus even unto death. Did you see what it was? It was fixing his eyes on Jesus. And Jesus alone, not, not looking at his persecutors, not even looking at himself, 
fixing his eyes on Jesus alone allowed him to endure this suffering even unto death. And here's how that helped Stephen, and I believe it can also help you and I today in our witness. First of all, as Stephen followed the example of Jesus, just as we saw last week, he knew, first of all, to expect suffering. His hero was, was he experienced suffering as he was obedient to God, so he expected, hey, suffering is probably going to be a part of my witness for Jesus too. So it didn't surprise him, it didn't throw him off. Secondly, as Stephen focused on the truly unjust suffering of the one who had never once sinned. The one who, like a lamb before his shearers, is silent so he did not open his mouth. The one who, although he was reviled, did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to God. When he considered that, it took away every voice of, why me, or this is so unfair, God. It took every voice like that out of his mind. As Stephen looked at the resolved, steadfast suffering of Jesus, dying to provide a means of forgiveness for the very people who were putting him to death, it took away every ability that he had to want to seek revenge or retaliation against his oppressors. Finally, as we said, as Stephen saw Jesus advocating on his behalf in the only courtroom that truly matters, he was able to endure this unjust suffering, unfair judgment at the hands of these men in this much lower earthly court. It's the only way. It's the only way Stephen was able to die a hero's death was because his gaze was immovably fixed on his hero, Jesus Christ. And I believe, I'm just saying, I, I believe that it can be just the same for us today if we'll only do the same thing ourselves. Don't focus on those who are coming against you and oppressing you. Don't focus on you and, and your own suffering. Focus on Jesus. Look at the way he endured for you, and it will give you the strength to be able to endure yourself. That's an answered prayer for boldness, dying a hero's death, but given the way we started, my guess is most of you are probably most anxious to hear me explain what I said, that Stephen's call to offer up his life as the cost of being a witness for Jesus wasn't unique to him. It's Jesus' call on all of us as his witnesses, so let's jump into that, and let's look finally at our call to witness today. Our call to witness today. And I think we truly need to address this because, as I said, I think it's, it's so much of our, it's way too easy for us. It's the proclivity of all of us to want to distance ourselves from what we read here in our passage today. We want to push it out to the margins and, and say, yeah, sure, in Jesus' day and age or in other parts of the world, yeah, yeah, offering your life for God, uh, giving up your life to be a witness for Jesus. That's what they had to do, but it's different for us here. It's not the same here in Canada. I mean, we... Jesus doesn't require the same things for us here, to which I want to say, really? You think that uh, being a witness for Jesus over there means something really hard, uh, martyrdom, imprisonment, uh, floggings, but here, being a witness for Jesus just means going to church on Sunday, just reading your Bible whenever you can get to it, and enjoying Chris Tomlin music? You think, you think that's it? No, it's much more than that. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the man who was part of a, a failed attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler during World War II, and he was hung for his crimes, sadly, just days before the war ended, he wrote this, these powerful telling words. He said, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
When Jesus invites you to be a witness for him and his family, he invites you to offer up everything and to come and sacrifice your very life, whatever that looks like, to be his witness. The early church historian, Tertullian, wrote this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Likely referring to even what we saw in our passage here today, the way Stephen's death actually brought about this amazing growth in the life of the church. We read about historically, not, not that many years ago, men, women, and families who when they left for their mission to go serve in Africa, at that time called the Dark Continent, they would head and leave packing their belongings in a coffin because they knew, I'm not coming home. I'm here to give my life and I'll be there until I come home in this box. Or even the great missionary Jim Elliott, missionary pilot who he and his friends were were killed by the very tribe they went to minister to who said so famously, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. Jesus said so many things like this himself in his own life and ministry. Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. John 12, predicting his own death, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Whoever loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What those examples and what those scriptures, I think, indicate very clearly for us is that regardless of our place in history, regardless of our geographical location, the cost of following Jesus is the same. It is surrendering our life to Him. The cost of following Jesus and of being a witness is to surrender our life for Him. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than that same verse we looked at, Acts 1.8. Jesus is commissioning the disciples to carry out the mission He'd made them worthy for Acts 1.8. Remember, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do you know what the most common Greek word for witness is in the New Testament? Martus. Which, from which we get the English word martyr. Think about that. Jesus commissioning all of his followers then as well as today saying and you will be my martyrs when the spirit comes upon you jerusalem judea to the ends of the earth now does that mean that every single one of us is going to die some horrific death for following jesus no no if you look at the history of the church that happens and it continues to happen but it's a pretty rare occurrence actually But those examples and those passages, when we look at those and we hold them up against what the book of Hebrews shows us, Hebrews 11, where we read about both, two groups of people, both those who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched 
the fury of the flames escapes to the edge of the sword. We got this group here, right alongside those who are flogged and imprisoned, those who are stoned, even sawn in two. We see the book of Hebrews refers to both of those groups, those who look like successes and those who look like colossal failures. Both are seen as witnesses, as martyrs for Jesus. Calls them both men of whom this world was not worthy. So Hebrews 12 tells us, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, of martus, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And as we close this morning, my simple encouragement for each one of us here, myself included, is the very same as what we just read in Hebrews. As you seek to be a witness today for Jesus, whatever that looks like, whatever the cost for you looks like as you offer up your own life, whether that means facing literal lions or the lions of family and friends, the pressures on you, a cultural opposition, or just the remaining fleshly desire in all of us that seeks to build our own kingdom instead of God's kingdom, whatever that looks like, run the race marked out for you. Not the race for somebody else, not my race. Run the race marked out for you. God hasn't called all of us, actually hardly any of us probably, to run a race with a finish line like Stephen's. But he has still called you to offer up your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, wherever he leads you and however he calls you to do that. He has still told us if, if we want to find our lives, we need to lose them for his sake for the gospel's sake. And he has promised us that whenever we will deny ourselves, seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, that our, all our other needs will be met truly in him, which means as you leave this morning, I'm, I'm asking you to consider in your own heart and mind, what do you need to die to today in order to be a more faithful witness for Jesus? What needless weights are you carrying right now that is hindering you from running the race set out for you? So you think about Ananias and Sapphira. What are you still holding back from God in your offering when he's called you to surrender everything to be his witness? If you fix your gaze on our example, our hero, Jesus Christ, like Stephen did, I promise you, you too can be faithful in your witness for him even unto death. Let's pray.